0: So uh, today I wanna talk with you about being and doing. Uh, One of the most important tasks in life is to grasp the difference, I think, between being and doing, as well as how to relate them to each other, Uh, particularly how to give a priority to being, our being over our doing. Uh, And it's important not just to grasp this intellectually uh, and understand it, but to grasp hold of it as a life-giving dynamic. Uh, as something that frees you and enables you to live a fruitful life. In the middle of the 20th century, the writer George Orwell, uh, he famously wrote the novels Animal Farm and 1984, uh, he discovered the difference between being and doing, and the priority of being overdoing um, as he began his writing career. Uh, early in his life, Orwell had felt the call to become a writer, Um, And at first it was a call he resisted. Maybe you felt a call that you've kind of pushed back against in some ways. But his life experience kept exposing him to the plight of the poor and marginalised and highlighting the, the tyranny and injustice of many of the powerful in his society. And he longed to put pen to paper in order to do something for the oppressed and against their oppressors but it wasn't until he was 25 years old that he realized in order to do something truly meaningful for the oppressed of his day he needed to first be with them so instead of trying to write about and agitate for and decree what would be best for the oppressed in europe and the british empire he, he left the comfort and safety of his middle class existence and went and lived among those squeezed to the fringes of society Uh, first of all he went tramping so he joined the ranks of the many homeless people in europe of the time uh, who by law were not allowed to establish a permanent camp or to beg and so they moved from place to place staying one place one night and in another place the next entirely reliant on people's charity they couldn't ask for it After doing this for a while, he he moved to France, where he worked long days, 13 hours, washing dishes for a hotel and a restaurant for a meagre hand-to-mouth wage. And eventually he went to Spain, where in the 1930s, he joined the struggle against the rising tide of right-wing fascist power in Europe. It was a struggle he wasn't to win. Uh, The Spanish fascists overwhelmed those who opposed them and they implemented a totalitarian nationalist government. But but out of these experiences of being with the marginalized, the oppressed and the downtrodden, George Orwell emerged with a clarity of conviction. As one person who wrote about him puts it, he, he had experienced that purifying moment when you know why you were put on this earth and you become ruthless about pursuing this mission. A friend of Orwell's apparently remarked, uh, if there had there'd been a kind of fire smoldering in him all his life, which suddenly broke into flame, he became angry at any injustice and coolly passionate. He was outraged by lies and but kindly towards people. He was fully engaged in fighting fascism, but always detached enough to be able to face the unpleasant truths about his own side. And he's an example of the power of being, defining our doing. I imagine some of you may have experienced this, though perhaps in a less dramatic way than George Orwell did, although I'm looking forward to reading the the novels that might emerge from this uh, group of people. But anyone who's ever needed help Uh, perhaps because they have a disability or find themselves a victim of circumstance in some other way, anyone who's needed help knows about the importance of prioritising being over doing. While help and even financial help offered from afar by someone who's well-meaning might be welcome and might help you do some things, it's far better when it comes from someone who's taken the time to be with you to understand you and your situation deeply from the inside and to work with you to forge a solution that doesn't only fix your problem, but involves you in it, dignifies you and empowers you rather than just leaving you indebted to someone who's kept you at arm's length. Why? Because being takes priority over doing when my wife Natalie worked in her first job as a research assistant at a university, um, I guess PhDs have been in the family for a while, uh, when she spent a lot of time getting to know and try to understand and help international students from mainland China who were here in Australia doing their masters or PhDs. She spent time explaining Australian culture to some of them and trying to help them navigate the university's bureaucracy, Uh, and inviting them to lunch or drinks with with Aussie colleagues to help them feel included. But it wasn't until she suggested that the Chinese international students actually take the Aussie colleagues out to Yum-cha, that things really started to change. Because in that moment and that experience, the tables were turned, you see. The international students who had always felt like outsiders dragged along to the pub for burgers and beer, but never quite fitting in or, or you know offered help by the insiders, well suddenly they, they were on par. In fact, maybe a little above. They they actually knew they could order in the you know, ordered us chicken feet. We didn't know it was coming because they just ordered in Mandarin and they're being took priority over their doing and, and just changed how they were engaging in a really dramatic way. Psychologists also make a lot of this difference between being and doing. Uh, they argue that mental health is best fostered when our doing is grounded in our being and aligned with it. Now, one article I read during the week put it like this, it said the, the driven doing mode is goal-oriented motivated to reduce the gap between how things are and how we think they need them to be. Our attention is narrowly focused on these discrepancies between actual and desired states. By contrast, the being mode is not devoted to achieving particular goals. In this mode, there's no need to emphasize discrepancy-based processing or constantly to monitor and evaluate, how am I doing in meeting my goals? It's not hard to guess uh, how different these two modes would feel, is it? When doing takes priority, we feel pressured and exhausted, dissatisfied because we're focused on that gap between how things are and how we want them to be. But when being takes priority, we feel less pressured, more able to accept what's going on and be present in our own lives and experience. Uh, there's even research to suggest that in being driven mode we're more able to resist our tendency to to fling ourselves into unhealthy coping strategies when we're upset or stressed and on the flip side we we experience a sense of freedom and and freshness and the spiritual root of all this is not hard to spot is it if you're anything like me uh, you're probably all too familiar with how a kind of activist doing driven approach to life can leave you wrung out and lacking contentment how you can kind of hollow yourself out turning up to church activities stepping up to responsibilities doing what you're supposed to do but all the while running on fumes unless your doing is anchored in and nurtured by a deep And constantly replenished reservoir of being with God. And getting the right relationship between being and doing is very much the focus of Jesus' teaching in that passage we had read just before from John 15, 1 to 17. In this passage, we discover two things that I want us to explore together this morning. The first is that doing for Christ that isn't rooted in being with Christ will make you spiritually flat. And the second is that being with Christ that doesn't lead to doing for Christ will make you spiritually fat. And we'll consider each of these in turn as we dwell on Jesus' teaching and what he reveals about himself here in John 15, 1-17. Because together, These supply us with significant spiritual resources to help enable us to make our being a priority over our doing and to energize and free us to act in ways that bring glory to God and make for our good. What Jesus offers in today's gospel reading is is not another project or fad that makes a bid for our fleeting interest he doesn't simply appeal to spiritual willpower as if he was calling on us to cultivate the the spiritual equivalent of brute stubbornness rather jesus holds out here a vision of a full and flourishing life deeply rooted in a vibrant and vital relationship with him and it's this vibrant and vital relationship with the Lord, this being with Christ. It's, this is the only thing that can sustain us to keep loving and serving the Lord Jesus and his church and his world. So, I, I first want to show you what Jesus says here about how doing for him that isn't rooted in being with him will make you spiritually flat. Um, Actually, flat is an understatement, as we'll see. Before we get there, though, we need to pay attention to how, as this passage opens, Jesus urges his disciples to stop and be. You may have heard it there, his invitation. Jesus invites his disciples to abide in him. That is, to remain with him and somehow mysteriously in him, dwelling in an unhurried way. Rather than rushing here and there in frantic, driven activism. We'll look at the first four verses. Listen again. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me verse one introduces us to the key image Jesus uses here in this passage the image of the vine I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser this is a rich and resonant image you can well imagine how it would have struck jesus first followers that they'd walked around half of palestine with him right? they'd seen the vineyards and the low vines in which the cucumbers and gourds grew They'd probably sheltered from the sun under a vine or two in their time and so imagine that the image of the vine is earthed for them in their everyday experience they know it well they've they've seen and tasted it. even more than this though the image of the vine was prominent in the scriptures which jesus first disciples were familiar with time and again in the old testament god's people are described in terms of a vine or a vineyard the prophet ezekiel for example uses the image of a vine to vividly sum up the story of the exodus from egypt when god rescued his people and brought them out of slavery that defining event that made israel a nation having delivered his people from egypt God plants them in the promised land where there's everything needed for them to grow and flourish. But Ezekiel says, Israel the vine stretches its branches and tendrils, not out to their God, but to others from whom they hope to receive life. And this Ezekiel says is bad news for God's people and so it's striking that as jesus takes this image here in john 15 and applies it to himself he begins by emphasizing that he is the true vine and his own father is the vine dresser where israel had failed to be a vine planted by god and bearing fruit for god jesus does it truly He's the true vine, but even more amazingly, Jesus explains that he's the kind of vine that bears fruit through the branches that enjoy a living and intimate connection with him. Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now I've been out to the Yarra Valley at least a couple of times, um, but I'm not a viticulturalist. I don't know about vine dressing and, and making vines bear fruit much, but it doesn't take a skilled viticulturalist to know that the branches of a vine need to stay connected to the main vine in order to keep drawing up water and nutrients and stay alive. Uh, my kids, actually, who, who relish the modest crop of tomatoes and cucumbers we grew in our lockdown veggie patch last year, they know this. Right? They've even done the experiments with like dye and water and a bit of celery and you see the kind of the liquid travel up. And it's the same with vines. Even my kids have a dim sense of the power and importance then of pruning They've seen the fruit trees we have in our garden out here. They know that the crop is much better and healthier when we give attention to pruning, when we prevent the trees from having so many branches that all the nutrients get diverted from the fruit to bearing lots of leaves just everywhere. And it's the same, Jesus says here, with those who follow him and seek to serve him. get the message right more important than doing things for jesus or even associating yourself with him through regular attendance at church for instance or even studying and knowing lots about him of utmost importance is having and maintaining a vital connection with him being with him one with him as living branches are with the vine jesus puts this most pointedly in verses five and six i'm the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and i in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. catch his drift, right? Remaining in Jesus and connected with him, rooting your being in and with him, is the only way to have life and flourish spiritually. If we fail to do this, if we fail to anchor our doing for Christ in our being with and in him, we end up in the opposite of spiritual flourishing, spiritual flatness, or to use the even more confronting image of Jesus uses, spiritual death, withered, dried out, useful only for stoking a fire. And so remaining, abiding, being with Jesus must have priority over all our doing even our doing for jesus in fact remaining in and abiding with jesus even trumps following after him the new york pastor and author pete scazzaro puts it like this work for god that is not nourished by a deep interior life with god will eventually deteriorate and us with it. Let's just roll that round for a moment. It's confronting. And so, how? How do we remain connected with and abiding in Jesus? Well, Jesus says it there in verses 7 to 11 If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. We remain in Jesus as his word remains in us. It's as we tune into him, as we call to mind and dwell on and study the words of Jesus, that we remain vitally connected with him. And that makes sense when you think about it, doesn't it? A big way in which you honour and connect with the people in your life who you love is by listening to their words. You know, you pay attention to what they say and what they tell you they want and they care about, and you keep that in mind as you relate to them. Now, this happens with my wife, Natalie. Um, She has uh, the very great travesty of taking her coffee with milk in it, right? You know, it looks very nice in a cafe when they make it all fancy looking, but it's just froth, right? And it obscures the real taste of the coffee in my opinion obviously i'm a black coffee drinker uh, and that's the way you should be but natalie takes it with milk and she tells me this with her words and because i love her i bring her coffee with milk in it because i love her i listen to her words her words abide in me and shape how i relate to her and jesus says it's to be the same with his disciples and in him how do you remain in jesus how do you remain connected with him with a deep and vital connection give attention to his words dwell on them saturate yourself in them allow them to shape you and how you relate to him uh, one way christians in previous centuries found it helpful to do this was they talked about meditating on god's words Uh, christian meditation is not very much like meditation in buddhism or or similar spiritualities It's, it's not about emptying your mind rather as one writer puts it christian meditation involves taking the words of jesus and the words about jesus you know the words in the bible and thinking their truth in and thinking their truth out until the ideas become big and sweet moving and affecting and until the reality of god is sensed in your heart i'll read that again it's about thinking their truth in to your heart and thinking their truth out through all its implications and consequences until the ideas become big and sweet moving and affecting and until the reality of god is sensed on your heart. It's about reading God's words and resisting the urge to rush and move on. It's about pausing and reflecting and rereading, pressing into them, allowing them to loom large for you. Now, one Christian actually from a few centuries ago said that for every hour of preaching you listen to, or bible that you read you need eight hours walking it out in the fields chewing on it praying about it working up a sweat over it spiritually pressing it into your mind and heart i'll leave you to do the calculations about how much time you need to walk out in the fields after this sermon but you get the point right ensuring that we abide in jesus And that our being with Jesus takes priority over our doing for Jesus. It doesn't happen by accident. It takes deliberate, focused, intentional effort and attention. You have to tend to it like you do to a garden or or a vine. At the same time, it's also the case that we can give so much attention to being with Jesus. We can cultivate our habits of spiritual attention and meditation and contemplation. We can prioritize our personal devotional life so much that we actually fail to let that shape and govern our doing. And this is just as dysfunctional as failing to prioritize our being over our doing. In this dysfunctional approach to being and doing, we effectively turn the reality that we must have a personal relationship with Jesus, which is 100% true. We must. We turn this into a fiercely guarded kind of privatised faith. It can become more important for us to have a daily quiet time than to love and serve those God puts in our lives. But this, being with God, that doesn't lead to doing for Christ and others, this will make you spiritually fat. It's a long way from the example of Jesus, for one thing. If you know much about the life of Jesus from the Gospels, you'll know that he frequently got interrupted by needy people seeking him out and asking him to do something for them. Uh, Even when he was seeking to be alone with his father in prayer, he got interrupted. More than this, though, Jesus actually allowed himself to be interrupted. He was interruptible and he was compassionate with those who interrupted him with their needs and agendas. Now, certainly, uh, my experience in lockdown with two primary school aged kids is one of near constant interruption, usually in the form of demand for snacks. But we all know as well that in workplaces too, it can be easy to slide into regarding the the frequent meetings, particularly perhaps Zoom meetings, and the check-ins and the emails from colleagues as interruptions to my work, my deadlines that I'm trying to meet either way many of us have a tendency to meet interruptions or perhaps better the people interrupting us we we don't have a tendency to meet them with compassion perhaps rather with frustration which is a nice christian word of saying anger and dismissiveness and defensiveness because they're getting in the way of my stuff It's worth pausing to reflect on what your natural tendency might be with interruptions. Are you like Jesus, interruptible? Or are you more like me, pushing them away? And so Jesus gives us a clear example of how his being with the Father flows into and shapes and energizes his doing for others. He doesn't hold back from them. He pours himself out for those, even those who interrupt him. But here in John 15, uh, Jesus also provides some clear teaching about how and why it works this way. Um, Just listen to how he puts it in verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, it's worth remembering that Jesus here is expanding on the teaching he'd introduced his disciples to a couple of chapters earlier in John 13. Just after he'd washed their feet, he'd spoken to his disciples there about a new commandment they were to observe. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so he introduced that there in john 13 and he's building on it and teasing it out here in john 15. now whatever precisely makes this commandment new he calls it a new commandment uh, what jesus says here in john 15 adds specificity to the well-established commands to love god and love others as we love ourselves as jesus explains it that the form that love is to take when it is grounded in and governed by our being with God. The form is specific. It has a specific object and it has a specific shape. It has a specific object on the one hand, Jesus says his followers are to love one another, not, not just others in general or the whole human race in the abstract but specific others, the others sitting round the table, the others who belong to Jesus. So it has a specific object, but it also has a specific shape. The way Christians are to love one another, Jesus says, is the same way he loves them. It's as he has loved you. And just in case the disciples have missed the whopping great big hints that Jesus has been dropping about how he's going to love his disciples, you know, in washing their feet, getting their dirt and grime physically and symbolically on him. And in taking the place they belong in as the servant so that they can have the place owed to him as the one served. Just in case they'd missed all of this, Jesus spells it out. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends jesus loves his followers he loves you and me by dying for them and us he loves them by laying down his life willingly for those he calls friends he loves them by washing them and us clean of our sin and spiritual grime and trading places with us so we might receive what's owed to him. As he explains it in the next few verses of John 15, Jesus' love for his followers means that he calls them friends. Loving and laying down his life for them lifts his followers up from the position of being servants to being friends to being the ones he entrusts himself to and who he is willing to be with rather than just having them around to do things for him and better even than this jesus draws his disciples into his own intimacy with his Father he makes known everything god the father has made known to him and as we see in verse 16 this this outrageous promise that he assures his disciples that whatever they ask in his name will be done to them by the father see the intimacy and profound connection jesus brings his disciples into In theological terms, Jesus is here teaching about his role as the mediator. Jesus is the one mediator between God and human beings. He's our go-between. He's the bridge in himself between heaven and earth. Because what he does for his disciples is connect us with God. And in the theology of John's gospel, What Jesus does in connecting his disciples with God, his mediation flows out of his being with his Father. Jesus is the perfect mediator between us and God. He can bring us into intimate union with God because he and his Father are one. His being is anchored in and grounded in. And profoundly connected with his fathers. And so, the call to us here to take this as the pattern and template for us in loving others is to take, to ground our doing in our being with Christ, to love others by laying down our lives for them metaphorically and, if it comes to it, literally. And to do this, so that we can lift them up to connection with us in friendship and ultimately to connection with God the Father. And we can only do this, we can only love people like this as Jesus has loved us to the extent that we ourselves are united with and remain and abide in Jesus. He's the true vine. We must draw our life spiritually from him. And so this is the way Jesus teaches us to prioritise being with him over our doing for him and others. But to do it in such a way that our being shapes and governs and energises our doing. But if you're anything like me, you probably find all this quite challenging. In the first instance it can be hard to prioritize being overdoing because of our inner activist one of the strangest gifts god has given me in the past 18 months or so is he's forced me to confront my inner activist Uh, he did this by demanding that that i along with many of you no doubt had to slow down and cut back and and limit not only how many people i could see but but what I could spend my time on. I say this was a gift, but I don't want to suggest it wasn't hard. It's it's been incredibly hard. There've been tremendous losses and I know different people have experienced those losses in different ways. There's there's just so much to mourn in the last 18 months. I suspect that as a society, we'll carry the scars of our collective trauma for, for some time yet. But as I say, one of the things I had to do at some indeterminate point between March and June last year, i mean, who knows what happened then and what day was what, and, well, I had to chuck out my calendar for the, for the whole year. I had to come to grips with letting go of my plans, all the things I thought I would do, the places I'd go. My calendar was packed to the brim, right? But I just tore it up and chucked it out. And this was a painful experience. At one point in the first lockdown, I I was sitting on the couch uh, in the lounge room with my wife at the end of a long day, except that I wasn't sitting on the couch, I was sort of perched on the edge of it. And I kept jumping up to fuss with things. I would pop in and out of the kitchen and move and I was sort of agitated. Eventually, Natalie said to me, do you have somewhere to go? And the answer was no, obviously. And that was the problem. Nowhere to go. Uh, My body, my very muscles kept trying to unsettle me, to to set me in motion, to propel me somewhere, anywhere, as long as it was forward. The problem was I couldn't go anywhere. I didn't love this at the time, safe to say. (laughs) Uh, But over the year, I came to view this forced pause as a gift to me because it exposed and stirred up in me my inner activist. It brought me face to face with this unsettled dynamic in my heart, this deep desire to keep moving, to maintain momentum, to be doing something, anything, and going somewhere, anywhere, rather than just stopping and being where I was. Maybe you too have an inner activist or are sitting on a couch next to one. Perhaps this, is a big part of why you struggle and find it difficult to prioritize being with Jesus over doing for him because you feel like you're hitting the targets and going anywhere at the other extreme perhaps you struggle with a kind of fear or anxiety about taking action perhaps you find it's easier and safer to sort of stick to those disciplines of of spiritual self-care, to feed yourself on Christ's word, to download the latest sermon, to read the latest about the theological trend, uh, to endorse or or watch out for, because because you find that less demanding, less potentially messy and costly than laying down your life to serve people, to call them friends and invite them into your life, to, to lift them up, and to entrust yourself to them because they might hurt you it might not work out whichever way it goes for you whatever it is that makes it hard for you to prioritize being with god over doing for him and to express your being with him in loving others as christ has loved you it's a struggle we can't afford to give up it's it's too important it makes too big a difference as far as remaining organically and vitally connected with jesus goes as far as bearing fruit in him goes as far as our own spiritual lives and health goes but in the end The only thing that can shift us the only force that can still our inner activist at the same time as it calms our fears and moves us into action that we might take risks for the sake of others the only thing is a deeper embrace of christ's being with and doing for us listen again to how jesus puts it in verse 16 You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Better than and prior to all our efforts, even our efforts to prioritise being with Christ, before all of this and better than all of this is his being and his action, is his initiative, his choice that, That he's taken to move towards us, to embrace us, to call us friends, and to lay down his life for us. He's done this knowing full well how we have and do and fail to abide in him. You know, these very same disciples he's speaking to here within a few hours are literally abandoning and betraying and denying him and he knows this and he loves them anyway and he loves us the same willingly and joyfully out of the overflow of his love for us jesus risks it he recklessly and lavishly pours out his love and mercy on us in spite of our struggles and failings And when that gets into your heart, when that grips you, you'll put to death your proud and usually all-too-effective inner activist so you can stop and be with Jesus. And it will raise you up, lift you up onto your feet from your fearful paralysis and your risk aversion so you can attempt and do great things for Jesus and for others for his sake do you want this i want it i want it for me and i want it for you so let me pray and commend us to god